Good morning, those watching online as well. Good morning to you. Uh, we've been in a series um, entitled How To. And I'm excited because uh, for many reasons, obviously an opportunity to be able to proclaim God's word again. Uh, yet your, your, your servant here is so unworthy, but yet God sees fit to use the bald head preacher. And so with that, I'm, I'm excited. And I'm more, I'm more excited about this even that um, there's exciting days, exciting days in the life of Biltmore Church. Exciting days. If you haven't seen in the last several weeks, just over the last year, the things in which God has been doing and has been doing, uh, I will pray that you open your eyes. And I would even say this, even last week, the church, hey guys, we all stepped up. Every campus, we all stepped up uh, to the plate and were able to sponsor 750 Compassion Kids, and I'm excited about, about that. Now, I know Pastor Bruce is excited about that. We are as well, and on behalf of um, our staff, we want to say thank you for not only, uh, I would say, just coming to church, but being the church. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how to study the Bible. The Bible is probably one of the most um, controversial books in history. It is also one of the most quoted books in all of history. It is also the most sold book in throughout history, translated in so many different languages throughout the years, and it has been recorded that there are still 1,200 um, people groups that still don't have the Bible translated in their, their native tongue. I came across this this week that Hobby Lobby and a couple of the organizations are penetrating on this particular issue, saying, look, we want to put money towards translating the Bible in every single language. Isn't that great? So 1,200, there's 1,200 people groups. But though even with it being the most controversial, the most quoted, the most sold, the most translated, it comes with also being the most uh, misinterpreted. In the sense of uh, there's always these misconceptions surrounding the Bible. I remember even being at Moody Bible Institute studying in my undergrad and and you would think Moody Bible Institute that you will come there ready to start serve and, and ready to learn God's word and all that good stuff. Yes, that's the case. But even four years of journeying through some rigorous theological understanding, rigorous hermeneutics and all that stuff, I begin to realize that I begin to look at this book as a textbook and not the book. So the danger is I begin to look at all the resources within the library um, that, that pointed really to help, to really try to help in t- articulate this book, I begin to look at this book as a, a textbook. Misconceptions, even at a Bible college. What about the presuppositions that you and I, every single person in the room, the presuppositions that we bring to the Bible when we approach it? I'll explain what that means. In other words, th- these preconceived notions These preconceived notions, West Asheville, these preconceived notions in a sense of historically, um, these have been true, but also um, President's Day as well. So culturally, we bring a lot of stuff to the text. As an African-American man, I bring some some cultural things to the text as I read the Bible. We must do a little bit of scaffolding, and then we're going to dive into our text. Y'all okay with that? So culturally, we all bring, whether it doesn't matter your ethnicity, we all bring something to the Bible. Please hear me say this. Culturally, but also intellectually, we all bring something to the Bible as we approach it. 
but then also generationally the things we've heard and the things we've been taught over the years that are necessarily not true about the Bible, but just cultural things that we've kind of adapted and adopted into our own rigorous, if you want to say our own theology. Things like this, God doesn't help those until those that, uh, what was the saying? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Amen. Y'all know it better than I do. Amen. Man, I heard East Asheville was on that deal. But here it is. What about this one? Uh, uh, Cleanliness is next to what? Where is that in the Bible? So these misconceived notions, and we've just kind of gradually over the years begin to adopt and even try to apply some of these things when it comes to God's word. Well, the Bible this morning, I I want to talk about this real quick. In essence, we have to do a little bit of heart surgery before we get to the application. The Bible is God's self-revelation to us about himself. Amen, amen. The fact that God wanted us to know him is the reason he wrote this book. He is the grand author of this book. You say, Marcus, is God speaking? I will say, yes, open up your Bible. It is God's self-revelation to us about himself. To misrepresent scripture is to misrepresent God. I want to say it again. To misrepresent scripture is to misrepresent the Lord. And now the nature of scripture is this. is God breathed. Caleb, he read the text from 2 Timothy 3.16. It is God breathed. And it demands we study it carefully. It also demands that we present it faithfully. It also demands that we obey it wholeheartedly. Now, am I here? Absolutely not. But I'm going to give us a graduation, growth, maturation track in just a little while on how to study the Bible as you journey in your walk with the Lord. This book is infallible. In essence, infallible is a big word. It means it's, it's incapable of being wrong. I'm going to say it again. We're just saying cornerstone. Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus is the word. Infallible means that the Bible is incapable. It cannot. It's incapable of being wrong. But it's also, it's inerrant. It's without error. It's the greatest commentary on its own self It's also inspired. It's ruach is the word. It's God breathed as if wind in the sail. God and his his sovereign breath has breathed into the word to give it life. God didn't reveal himself through a five-part video series. He revealed himself through 66 books. For that, that's what we're going to look at today. But I'm excited. You know why? We get to look at one verse. Hendersonville, we get to look at one verse this morning. Everybody say one verse. Our text today is a prayer written years ago and probably one of the most saturated scriptures throughout the whole Bible in regards to God's word. Psalm 119, it's 176 total verses in the whole book, in this whole chapter rather, but in essence, out of only three, out of all 176 verses, do not deal with God's word. I would say that whoever wrote this, and many scholars will say it's David, some say it was Daniel, some say even Ezra, but, but most scholars point towards David. And I would say this, that David knew a little bit about suffering. David knew a little bit about understanding God's word. David understood a little bit about um, not trusting his own self and his own intellectual capacity, not um, serving the new triune God, me, myself, and I, but he says, I want to know more about God's word. And so in Psalm 119, Starting in verse 18, let's go ahead and read. we got to slow down, boy, because I'm ready to go. Now, y'all bear with me because I'm new to this whole screen deal. So um, Pastor Bruce, is, he's suave with it. So bear with me. We're going to make this thing happen. Amen. 
One verse, it says this, open my eyes. Now, those that are highlighted, pretty much that's, those are the points. So you'll see as we navigate through this text, one scripture, that this, the bold letters or the bold words are actually the points of the text. Open my eyes. And you go, well, that's, that's profound. That I may behold, that I may behold wondrous things, very key right here, out of, out of your law. The psalmist said, open my eyes. You see, God's word, his words are not for me and you to edit or to tinker with, but to believe and obey. That's what A.W. Tozer once said. So the first thought is this, is he says, man, I want you to open my eyes. Open my eyes. Open my eyes. It's a prayer. Remember this. It's a prayer. And I can, I can only imagine that when, when David was being pursued by Absalom or even King Saul, that he began to possibly lean on his own understanding. But in that moment, he said, I, I'm not, I don't want to do that. I don't want to lean on my own understanding. Lord, as I'm writing this, I desire that you open up my eyes. You say, Marcus, that was so good about that. It's posture. It's our posture. And in essence, an honest man or woman with any open Bible and a pad and a pencil is sure to find out what is wrong with him or her very quickly. In essence, when you and I open up the Bible, we're asking this question, Lord, um, we want to meet with you, but in essence, how can I meet with you unless your spirit illuminates and enlightens the text for me? And this is what the writer is saying. He says, open my eyes. I don't want to approach the text with my own intellectual capacity. I don't want to approach the Bible with my own understanding. I don't want to approach the Bible with my cultural tendencies. I don't want to approach the Bible with all of these things. I want to approach the Bible and see it how you see it. He says, open my eyes. The word open here means to uncover. I love this. To remove the lid, to unleash, to reveal. It's where we get our English word apocalypse. It's very interesting because we get our English word apocalypse, meaning this, you are, you're thinking right, actually it's the end times, but it means this, to remove something that was previously concealed or hidden. So the writer is saying, Lord, I, I'm thinking that I'm seeing things the way you want me to see them. I, I perceive within my own self as I navigate through circumstances and situations that I'm seeing things the way you want me to see them, but I don't want that to be the case. I don't want to actually assume when it comes to studying the Bible, Lord, open my eyes that I may see as you see it. So he says, open my eyes, reveal those things. It's a double implication, by the way. It's a double implication. Natural eyes, also the attitude of the heart. Not necessarily talking about the physical eyes, but points to the, the attitude of your heart and my heart and the reader. The disposition of the heart. Here it is. The posture is this. When you and I approach the text, how do we approach it in our, our posture? In essence, are we teachable? When you open up the Bible, are you saying, Lord, I don't care all the nooks and crannies of my life. And really, essence, I scratched this out of my notes, but when I'm reading the Bible, that's really the only time I can't lie. We have about three saved people in this whole house. Amen. <laughs> when I'm reading the Bible, that's really like the only time I can't, I can't lie. Why? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 4, 4.12 that the Bible is living and it's active. It penetrates even to the marrow of the bone, and it really reads me. I'm not reading it. As I study it, it's studying me. In essence, here's the point. The disposition is this. You and I, when we approach the text, we have to remain teachable have a right view of ourselves, and have a desire. 
Really, in essence, we ought to begin to say this, God, I can't, but you can. It's just quest for truth. Every single human is on a, a quest for truth. And it's funny because many of us in this room, online, in our culture, we put more faith in, in media and politics than in the word of God. Enough with me, the writer is saying, more of you. My starting point in life, my reference point, may it be the Bible. May this be my filter. May this be how I view everything. Doesn't start with me and what I think, what I feel, what I prefer. God's word is sure and I want to rest on that. So the difference between having physical eyes and spiritual eyes open is this. Physical eyes just open as this, go to church. Spiritual eyes open my eyes as I want to be the church. Spiritual eyes, I mean, physical eyes open means my kingdom. Spiritual eyes open is God, your kingdom. Physical eyes open as I'm navigating through life is the great omission. Spiritual eyes open my eyes that I may see. Spiritual eyes is, oh gosh, I have my mandate, the DNA of who I am as a disciple. It's the great commission. This is the case. It's interesting because the writer is even making an argument that a person can be in Christendom and be a Christian and, and not be seeing, seeing clearly. It is what Jesus said. Jesus even quoted, he said, let those who have ears, let them hear. Jesus said it. Let those who have ears, open them bad boys. Let those who have eyes, let them actually see. And actually, the writer earlier on in Psalm will say the same thing. J.R. Packer said this as we approach the text. He says, this is a very good question. Now, I would write it down if I were you. What do I intend to do with the knowledge about God once I have it? So this whole idea of posture and, and teachableness and humility and, and heart um, transformation, it starts with really this question, Lord, well, what am I going to do with the knowledge in which I have about you? You know, it's dangerous because when you go to a, um, a buffet, you can get whatever you want. Y'all know where I'm going with this. Amen. We got a buffet fan. Amen. Some good buffets, right? But sometimes buffets can be a little sketchy, right? You, you bypass certain things. You'd be like, man, that look like that's been sitting there for about four hours. I'm not messing with that deal. Look dry, right? And you got a couple of bubbles coming up underneath. You're like, man, why? What? It looks, man, this is this bad business. I'm not getting that. But a buffet, the beauty of a buffet is this, that I can choose whatever I want to choose. I want some mac and cheese. Give me some baked beans. Oh, when fried chicken is in the place, give me some fried chicken. But I can choose. I make the choice. And it's amazing how that simple analogy is correlated to how we've, we approach the Bible. You see, you and I, a lot of times, myself included, we, we make our own Bible. See, it's not the things that I don't understand about the Bible that worries me. It's the things that I do understand about the Bible that worries me. In essence, I'm saying this, is that as the writer is saying, I don't want to assume anymore. I know that I ought to be loving my neighbor as I love myself. I know I ought to be forgiving people just as you forgave me. I know that I ought to be giving and uh, sacrificially. I know that I ought to be serving. It's the things that I do know about the text that bothers me more than the things I don't understand yet. And the writer is saying, it's not what I think. Not what you and I think, it's, it's what God has said. He's our filter. And then secondly, he says, look, I want to make sure I behold. Look at this. He opened my eyes. Then he says, I want my eyes to be open spiritually to truly comprehend what you want me to comprehend, God. Stay with me, y'all. This is an eternal book. 
It's eternal. And there's no way that in our carnal eyes we can interpret properly without our spiritual eye being open. He said, behold wondrous things. Here's the purpose for your eyes being opened. He gives us, I mean, it's laid out very nice. Pastor Bruce was silly, man. He was, we were walking through this text and he goes, man, I'm a little envious. Man, the text just outlines itself. It really does. Open my eyes is, is my posture. But then also he says, I want them to be open. Here's the purpose for it is that I may behold wondrous things. Now this whole idea of wondrous things or behold really is really knowing God. As I was studying the text, I was starting to go, man, man what is the purpose of this? John 17, 3 uh, Jesus said this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. Isn't this interesting? Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, uttered these words. He says that this is eternal life. This is what it is, that they may know you, that they may know you. Isn't it scary that we can read this Bible and still not know the God of the Bible? How many secular universities, how many universities have professors that articulate and, and enunciate and, and actually um, just ridicule and interrogate the text and they still don't know the God of the Bible? It's amazing how that happens. You can read the Bible and still be distant from it. And Jesus says in his own words, he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have, who you have sent. So what are we to behold? This word behold means pay close attention. Don't miss it. Give me your undivided attention. This is new phenomenon going on in my, my house right now. Man, it's crazy. Y'all know, I always use my house as an analogy. I'm, I'm going to regret this probably when I get older. Amen. Somebody said, amen, you will. Amen. But, man, we have to repeat ourselves like, man, like 12 times over the most simple thing. Hey, um, how many of you guys want a ham and cheese sandwich? Now, this is us articulating this to our girls. How many of you guys want a, a ham and cheese sandwich for lunch? Silence. It's like, am I speaking in Dutch or something? What's going on here? Uh, excuse me, how many of you guys want a ham and cheese sandwich for lunch? Man, you would think, right? <laughs> Nothing. So I'm going, what in the world is going on? So I go, uh, girls, they're like, oh, snap, Papa, they're they on ten, a tin hut, right? How many of you guys want a ham and cheese sandwich, right? Oh, me, I want one, I want one, I want one, I want one. All of them in unison. Behold, give me your undivided attention. And this is not glancing. This is what the writer is saying. I don't want to glance at your word. I don't want to just, oh, your word to flow over my mind. I don't want your word to, to float over my head. I want your word to impact my life. And beholding is really beholding God's character and his works. In essence, you and I, as we filter the scripture, as we behold, what are we beholding? We're beholding the goodness of God's heart and the face of Jesus throughout all of scripture. Let me tell you this. We're beholding Jesus. You see, in Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he's the bronze serpent. In Deuteronomy, he's the promised prophet. In Joshua, he's an unseen captain. In Judges, he's my deliverer and your deliverer. Amen. In Ruth, he's a kingsman redeemer. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, he's the promised king. Ezra and Nehemiah, he's a restorer of the nations. Esther, he's my advocate. In Job, he's my redeemer. In Psalms, as we're studying this morning, he's my all in all. 
In Proverbs, he's your wisdom, he's my wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's my goal. In Song of Solomon, he's my beloved. In all of the prophets, major and minor, he's the coming prince of peace. In Matthew, he's Jesus, king of kings. In Mark, he's Jesus, servant of man. In Luke, he's Jesus, son of, um, uh, son of man. Servant of man is Mark, son of man is Luke. In John, he's Jesus, son of God. In Acts, he's Jesus, ascended, but also the one who sins. In all of the letters, he's Jesus indwelling, but then also he's the Jesus in, who fills you and I. In Revelation, he's Jesus who, who returns, and also he's, he's the worthy lamb. All of Scripture, 66 books, that's what we are to behold. And then the writer says, we ought to behold these wondrous things. Now, I want to stay here just for a little bit, these wondrous things. Wondrous things in the sense of these things are things that God has done through the years throughout history, but it also has the implications and the meaning of this, to behold one's power to do something, and that power is inadequate to actually do it. It's extraordinary things. It's amazing things. It's the unexplainable things. It's beyond the surface, but soul-level transformation. It's the fact that God can use you and me in spite of us. Have you thought about that? This is the wondrous things. A lot of times, again, we talk about this jokingly, but this is how we carry ourselves. We come into church thinking we, we're giving God a tip and, and, and God is, we're, we're doing God a favor and doing the church a favor by being here. Don't you know it's wondrous things that you woke up this morning? Don't you know it's wondrous things that your heartbeat was beating properly last night? Don't you know it's wondrous things that the blood is circulating properly through, the, through your organs all the way so that you can have function and moving? Don't you know that it is wondrous things that you're able to get up, step out of your bed, go to the toothbrush, go to the bathroom and brush your stinky mouth and brush your teeth. Don't you know it's wondrous things? Don't you know that it is salvation by grace alone and by faith alone, not by works, not by man? Don't you know that it is wondrous things that Jesus died in your place and my place? Don't you know that it is his air in our lungs? We sang about it. Don't you know that it is God who gets all the glory in the, in the past, present, and even future? It's wondrous things. It's wondrous things. It's wondrous things. The writer is saying, open my eyes that I may see spiritual things, what you're doing in my life. What would happen? What would happen, Franklin, if we, our eyes were truly opened? What would happen, Biltmore Church, if our eyes were truly opened? What would happen in our communities? What would happen in our homes? What would happen in the ministries in which we serve? What would happen if we had the, the prayer and the posture and disposition as this writer and saying, open my eyes. I don't want me to be the starting point. I want your word to be the starting point. Truly, God, peel back the things in which I think I'm seeing properly, but I want to see how you see things. Amen. Wondrous things. What about Transformation about the addictions, wondrous things. There's no explanation for somebody being delivered from addiction. What about forgiving somebody? Forgiveness is this, forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Finding peace and hope and reconciliation, healing in relationships. What about true life change? Real victory, life, living boldly for him. This is the wondrous things in which the writer is talking about. Now I want to spend a couple minutes on this. Graphe. Now, in the Bible, there's different words, and you'll see even through the book of Psalms that the, that the writer used different terms for the word of God, um, statues, uh, laws, commands, testimonies, all that good stuff. In the grand scope of Scripture, though, these, 
three words I'm going to list off is prominently used in regards to God's word. Graphe is the writings. Graphe is the ink on the pages. The ink on the pages. The second one is this, is Logos. Logos is the content of the graphe. I should have had arrows. It's the content of the graphe. And when we understand the content of the graphe, it leads to this last one, is rhema. Now, we've heard this before in some loose um, uh, settings, like, oh, give me that rhema word, give me that rhema word. And that's not what we're talking about. But when you and I, when we read graphe, read the Bible, read the Bible, when we read the graphe, the ink on the pages, it's only by God's spirit, it's only by God's power and enabling that you and I can understand the Logos and understand it. And the Logos is Jesus Christ. We just looked at all 66 books in regards to the fact that Jesus is the focal point of Scripture. The Bible is about Jesus and it's not about us. We're just, we're just extras. Graphe, Logos, and then Rhema. Let me give an example on this. Rhema is the used understanding of God's word. In Luke 5, um, Luke 5, 5, uh, or in Luke, actually, excuse me, later on in the book of Luke, when the disciples were uh, fishing, y'all know the story, and Peter, man, being the spokesman he was, he said, Master, we've toiled all night long and we've caught nothing, right? Professional fishermen, they... They toiled all night long, and they caught nothing. They caught nothing. They caught nothing. I think that was strategic, don't you? Jesus walks up, and he says, um, throw your nets on this side. It's interesting because after that comment, Peter says, at your word, we will do it. The word used there is not graphe because he, he heard the word, he understood the word, Jesus talking, but then rhema is the use of the word. I'm going to apply it. So he says, okay, Lord, we'll let the, the nets down based on your rhema word, based on the fact that I can apply exactly what you want me to apply. You see, a lot of us in our culture today, even in the church, this falls for the preacher, is we think we like having our Bible in our glove compartment in our car and think our car is sanctified. Oh, y'all ain't going to go there. Y'all don't have a little church, right? What about the big Bible on your coffee, your, 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 your mantle, your fireplace, or on your coffee table? You do the old school Bible, thick, right? Big one. Pages all turning brown. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The pictures, man, just very beautiful pictures. But never read it. So, this Bible, graphe, just sits on the coffee table. What about in our homes? We have a lot of writings, if you will. The graphe is in our homes. But have we dived or dove into the fact that God wants us to understand the Logos, see the face of Jesus, and then also not just stay there and have intellectual understanding and be smarter sinners theologically, but he wants us to use it and apply it, and really he gives us the green light to apply it through the means of the Holy Spirit, which is the rhema in any circumstance that God is navigating us through. Well, then lastly, the writer says, I want to open, open my eyes, please. Open my eyes, please. Open my eyes, Lord. Open my eyes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. But then he says, man, really it's going to come out of your law. That's the primacy of God's word, out of your law. 
It's going to be out of. And I want to take a quick moment real quick. Out of. Did I have a note on this? Yes. Amen. I'm glad I did. Out of. Now, we're about to do a crash course on hermeneutics. Everybody say amen. How to study the Bible. Many people go, how do you study the Bible? How do you approach the text? How do you take one verse and get all that out of it? How do you do 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 it? We're about to give a crash course on how to study the Bible. Y'all ready? The first two points were really just us peeling back the layers, what's Asheville, peeling back the layers of our hearts as we approach the text. Now let's dive into the practicality of saying, okay, here's how the Lord wants me to truly apply the rhema. He says, out of your law. Exegesis is basically exit, is where we get our word exit. Um, exodus, which means exodus, meaning out of, um, out of, if you will, been delivered out of. So that means out. Next word is this. Eisegesis. Iso is self or looking inward, if you will. And so this is where um, we can get in danger as Bible students and as saints as we study the word, is that we begin to look into the text and make the text say what we want it to say. So in essence, we're reading into the Bible what the Bible is not actually saying. You say, well, Marcus, how do we understand the Bible? Well, the word, uh, this word here, out of your law, is the word Torah, which means the first five books of the Bible. But in essence, I want to give you some framework to think in regards to Scripture. It's 66 books. 39 Old Testament. How many New Testament? 27. Amen. All I heard was like, I know y'all heard the same thing. So, 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, 40 writers, all different walks of life, written over a span of 1,500 years, three continents in which it was written upon, three different languages, one message is redemption, one author, and that's God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, these um, writers, it's the canon, 66 books, God, authoritative word, inspired and approved, um, preserved through centuries, it's our measuring rod on how to live life on this side of heaven. The structure of it is this, it's not in chronological order, however, there is different genres, there's law, there's history, there's wisdom, and poetry. There's prophecy, there's the gospels, and then there's the letters. Well, then here's the next set of diving in. This stuff, I love this stuff, by the way. Either studying the Bible will make you fall more in love with the Lord, or it's going to scare the mess out of you. It's the same sun that melts some wax, hardens others. And so here it is, the writer is saying, open my eyes that I may observe. Observation. And observation basically means this. When you and I approach Scripture, remember this. When you buy a house, they always say what? Location what? I'm going to give you three just profound statements when it comes to observing Scripture. Y'all ready? Context, number one. Context, number two. Context, number three. Context, context, context. Because if you and I understand the larger context, because the verse in which we're reading, that verse is a part of a paragraph. And that paragraph is a part of a chapter. That chapter is a part of a larger consensus circle is that actual book. That book is a part of one of um, the Old Testament or the New Testament. That book is a part of the New Testament. In this case, the, the, the book in which we're reading is the book of Psalms, and it is a part of the Old Testament. And then even as a whole, as you do biblical theology, you can start with one verse, but you got to keep going extra, 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 out, out, out. And then if it's the Old Testament text we're looking at today, guess what? It's a part of the old and the new. It's a part of the 66 books. 
That's how you arrive at understanding scripture. Context, context, context. And then interpreting the Bible. Here's the hardest part. When you do observation properly, you can come to a proper proper, um, interpretation. And this is the big idea. And this is one of the hardest parts of studying scripture, saints. Stay with me. We're almost done. This can be the hardest part. Because when you study a passage, you have to arrive to the point of going, what is the Bible saying? Not what I think it's saying. Not what I hope it's saying. Not what I wish it is saying. But what's the authorial intent? What is the reason in which the author, um, when he sat down, whether Paul in a dank cell or whatever the case may be, what is the reason in which the writer in this moment wrote this? What was going on historically? What was going on in regards to the government? What was going on in regards to the people? What was going on? This all will help you come up with a big idea, the main idea. Now, I must say this. There's only one big idea in the scripture, in the passage that you study, but many applications. I'm going to say it again. There's only one big idea that the Lord wants to drive home in a passage. One big idea. But there are many ways in which we can apply it. And then lastly, application, you got to cross the cultural bridge. you got to cross the cultural bridge. Now, granted, when it was originally written in this context, maybe just say in Rome or whatever the case may be, it meant something specific for this people group in this particular time and day and age. We have to cross the cultural bridge and say, okay, God, it meant that for them in this context. How do I download that and see this um, um, contextually in my context 2019 today, in my home, in my relationships, in my marriage, whatever the case may be, contextually right now, help me to cross the cultural bridge. Because we understand this, that there's some promises in Scripture that are specifically towards um, and for Israel. And then there's some that's universal. Okay, so we've got to be careful with that. And then we use a sword method here. Sword method is a great way. You can have many degrees, but this is a great way to study the Scripture. It prevents eisegesis. It prevents uh, reading into the text. Pastor Bruce, we mentioned this before from the platform, but it's this. What does the pastor say about God first? What does it say about the Lord first? Start there. Secondly, what does it say about man? What does it say about man? Then, what does it say, uh, what sin is there to avoid? Based on the text, what sin is there to avoid? And begin to jot down in journal and write down the things in which you begin to observe. Context, context, context. What is the promises to keep? Maybe something in regards to God delivering you. Maybe something in regards to salvation or whatever, that God is faithful. We sing about it. What are the promises within the text that you can write down and apply to your life? And then what examples um, can I follow or you can follow? And then what command to obey? You're like, dang, that's a crash course. It is. It's a crash course. There's so much more to that. Let me give you a couple application points, and I want to give you an illustration at the end. Action steps is this. You ready? The first one is acknowledge Acknowledge your weakness or acknowledge, acknowledge really your limitations, and that's what you do. When you pray, before you get in a text, you have to acknowledge, acknowledge your limitations. That I can't really interpret this deal without your help. Second one is this, is to read it. Duh, right? You got to read it. Make time for it. One of my professors said this one time, you're never wasting time when you're spending time with God. You're never wasting time. Sometimes I think we're in a rat race of life and we're going, 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 going. Uh, I don't have time for it. Guess what? If, God, if Jesus is not in your schedule, you don't have a schedule. He is life. It revolves around him. And then take a long-term view. 
Take a long-term view. This is what I mean by that. A lot of times when we were, in the, when we were studying, um, I ain't going to do that. Maybe I'll pull out something else. I ain't going to pull my actual debit card out. Some of y'all may zoom in and take a picture and then try to, I'm going to pull. Here's the illustration. You ready for this? But when you and I take the long-term view, it's like looking at Scripture as we study it as a debit card or a savings account. So a lot of times I think, all of us, we, we look at it as like a debit account. Just, I'm, I'm just depleting this, this, this balance. As I get in the Word, I'm just, just boop, boop. I read today, boop, boop, boop. Instead of, take, instead of looking at it as a debit card, depleting of a, an actual balance, we ought to approach, here's the application point, it's very healthy in regards to, we ought to look at it as a savings account. Because a lot of times when you do the debit account approach, you won't understand it in that particular season of your life. And maybe God is wanting it to be more of a savings account because what you read um, five years before, he's going to turn around and use it five years later. Take a long-term approach. And then honor the text. That's basically observation, interpretation, and application. Honor it. It's God's word. And then stay put. Marinate on it. Marinate for a moment. This is memorization, really. You see, here's why. We get frustrated sometimes because God is not working on our timetable. Do you know in God's majestic kitchen, there, is no, there are no microwaves, there's only crockpots. That's how he works. That is, I'm telling you right now, that's how the Lord works. No microwaves, only crockpots. And when you leave today, you're going to get a gift at all the campuses. You'll get a gift, and uh, it's going to be really Psalm 119, 18. It's a bookmark. And just as a reminder, so as you're going about your day, wherever you may be going, uh, going hiking, you can have it, have it in your refrigerator, wherever you need to put it. But as a prayer and as a help guide on how to study the Bible, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold Jesus, wondrous things, things I can't do, but it's going to come from your law. It's going to come from your word. And then we got to apply it. Lastly, just apply. Apply it. Not how we feel, but just, just flat out obey it. You say, Marcus, what's the benefit of all this stuff? You know why? This book cannot be destroyed. This book cannot be stopped. It was once said in 298 A.D., Diocletian, he was a Roman emperor. He, he persecuted the Christian church. He did a lot of cruel things, y'all. He murdered preachers. He burned Christian villages, pillaged Christian homes. Then, in an unspeakable act of arrogance, set out to burn every Bible within the empire, so he thought. He said, I'm going to burn every single Bible. And over the burn pile of all the Bibles, he declared this in Latin, extincta nomina Christor renora, mean this, the name of Christ is extinct. This is mankind and, and our idiotic approach on trying to stop this and why it's so important for us to get in this. Not even 10 years later, his hand-picked successor, Constantine, hits the scene. Constantine hits the scene trying to figure out um, what he saw in the sky one day. Um, um, and he said, look, I need a Bible to see this. I need a Bible to discover this. And so he made a, uh, uh, actually put out a, a fleece and said, I'm going to give her a reward. And here it is. There will be, um, he says, somebody bring me a Bible. And so it was that his, his predecessor, so, quote, unquote, burned all the Bibles, so we thought. He offered a reward, like I said a little while ago, for someone to bring him a Bible if they had one. In less than 25 hours, more than 50 copies of the Bible showed up. 
You see, because not even the world's top rulers can stop this book. It's not over. As I begin to ponder this in my the historicity of my mind, it was this. In 1778, when the notorious French philosopher Voltaire made an impressive, unprecedented, and blasphemous prediction, he said this, in a hundred years, the Bible will be no more. A few years later, he died, and the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and used it as a distribution center to send Bibles all around the world. Because not even the world-class philosophers can restrain, if you will, the power of God's word. We have a lot of contemporary pundits declaring the death of the word of God. Stay with me and we're done. But those who have placed the Bible in the casket and the casket of irrelevance and lowered it into the ground of disregard have come to discover that the Bible outlives its pallbearers. God's word is unrelenting. His truth is everlasting. His commandments are enduring. His gospel is indestructible. His judgments are indisputable. His corrections are timeless. This book is fresher than tomorrow's newspaper. Amen on that. It is more definite, if you will, than the Constitution. It's the backbone of science. It is the highest aim of philosophy. It is also the inspiration of poetry. It is God's word. It's God's word. It clarifies your call in life. It will transform your life. It will help you fight your temptations. It will give you light for your path. It will build your faith. It will feed your soul. Time cannot age this book, and ages do not time this book. It is the only book that cures what it diagnoses. You can read many books, but this is the only book that reads you. God's Word. You can't outgrow it, and you can't outlive it. Herod understood this. Herod couldn't stop it. Diocletian couldn't destroy it. If Nero, Nero couldn't tame it, Hitler couldn't change it. Thomas Jefferson couldn't redact it. Saul of Tarsus could not kill it. Moses tried to record it. Jeremiah tried to drop it. Hosea couldn't divorce it. It is the timeless, indestructible, self-sustaining, eternal word of God. Study it, saints. <laughs> Study the word of God. Open my eyes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law.